We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. How would you like a free case of craft beer? Well, as a listener to our show, we'd like to thank you for listening. And with the help of our friends at Beer52.com, we can do just that. Just go to Beer52.com forward slash vision. That's Beer, the number 52.com forward slash vision to claim a free case. Beer 52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. They search out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries and bring them back for their members. There is a whole world of craft beer out there. You don't have to drink the same thing over and over again. You don't have to order beer not knowing what you like. Just get on board with discovering great craft beer with Beer52.com. Every month focuses on a new country or theme, and if you sign up now, you'll get the chance to try a case of the best of British craft beers as part of their Summer Bangers selection, all for free. Featuring the country's best craft brewers, such as Northern Monk, Ilkley, Red Willow, and Thornbridge, all very delicious, you'll be able to read all about the beers and learn more about how they are made in a 100-page ferment magazine included in the box. As a listener to our show, you can try your first case for free. Just pay £2.95 postage. That's it. Eight incredible craft beers delivered to you, Ferment Magazine, and a snack with free next-day shipping. It's a no-brainer. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beers, see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause, cancel any time. Beer 52 has a five-star rating on Trustpilot, so it's easy to see that their members love the service. Do it now. Try some craft beer. Just visit beer52.com. That's www.beer52.com forward slash vision and claim your free case today. Try it. Beer52.com. It is the way to learn more about great beers around the world. Offer valid in the UK only. What a
Arsenal prove that they are already well into regular season form by dominating and then losing to Atletico Madrid in Singapore. Making his this is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Elliot Stilberto. You can Tim, welcome back. Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me back into the fold. Thank you for being welcomed back into the fold. Uh, and welcome back. You, you want to keep doing this? Pleasure. We can keep doing this. <laughs> no? All right. Let's move on. Uh, and here again, as always, is Clive, who is still welcome on the pod, at least for now. You can find uh, Clive on, on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. Okay, so Scott will be along in a little bit. We're going to uh, break down Alex Iwobi statistically. Uh, not break him down. We will not break him down. Hopefully he does not break down, but we're going to take a statistical look at him. And then later on in the pod, you will get a sneak peek, a sneak preview of uh, Tim's new book. It is called uh, Royal Arsenal. Is that right? Yeah. Royal Arsenal Champions of the South. Royal Arsenal Champions of the South. And I think it is only fair to say that if you are an Arsenal fan, if you believe that you support the Arsenal, if you want people to know you support the Arsenal, you will have to buy the book. I think that goes without saying, but you'll get a sneak, yeah, sneak peek of, uh, look at that later on in the podcast. But first, uh, let's get into this Ozil conversation. And, you know, I, we, we are going to talk the Atleti game. We're going to talk about Gazidis, Iwobi, uh, Jeffrey and Adelaide leaving a lot of that. But we'll start with Mesut Ozil. And so, Tim, it is, it is a topic that I think we want to uh, preface by saying, and I, I would like to believe that I speak for all of us, and if I don't, you can certainly correct me, that uh, none of us are fans of racism, xenophobia, and you know, any of those horrible things that have become a cancer in our society. I think we can have an intelligent conversation about <clears throat> what has happened with Mesut Ozil in Germany, uh, hopefully without anybody confusing what we are saying for being a support of any bad behavior, because I think there can be a nuanced discussion of this as long as we uh, say that up front. So I just want to say that up front. But, you know, I, I, I do think that Mesut Ozil presumably started this with a photograph with uh, Ergodon, er- Erdogan, thank you, Yeah, mm-hmm. getting this off to a flyer, and then from there things spiraled out of control. What is your perception of how he was treated in Germany and what, uh, if any, responsibility he has for the reaction he got? It was interesting. I was, I was reading up on quite a lot of this because I, I wrote about him just after the tournament when you know it, it became quite obvious that he was getting very, very heavily criticized and everything that was coming out of germany was very you know it was very like scapegoaty um and and you know i i i guess in my ignorance i didn't think much more of that than oh well you know mesut Ozil often gets that treatment because of body language blah 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 but when i wrote the piece i started kind of reading a lot about it and um <clears throat> I, had, I had a conversation with lewis ambrose who many of you will will know um, and be familiar with someone else who writes for us blog but lives in germany um and kind of follows this very closely and i i had an offline kind of conversation with him about it and he you know he was talking about some of the politics um shall we say um that that guide some of this and um it's 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 really i mean so i think there are two separate things going on here first of all you know there's the photograph um I think that you can absolutely expect criticism if you have a photograph with a controversial political figure like that. And Ozil's um, kind of explanation that he respects the office of president and that he didn't have any political intentions. I mean, it's naive at best. Um, He quite rightly um, and very correctly kind of uh, brings up some of the politics of 
some of the less savoury characters in the German FA, which I think is quite right to highlight, but at the same time kind of sweeps um, the politics of, of the man who was pictured with under the carpet. Um, and, and you know, also I think it emerged that Emre Chan refused the photo. Um, but, you know, as has been photographed with him before, he said he's met him before. So, you know, maybe it's difficult to say no. I, you know, I, I think you can expect a bit of criticism um, for doing that. Um, I also think he had a bit of a pop at Mercedes about this kind of fuel emissions um, <laughs> scandal. And, and I was thinking, yeah, but that's not the reason you didn't work with them, is it? You were presumably quite happy to work with them. And you've kind of brought this up because they've had a go at you. But um, so that's one thing that's going on. But I think that's small change um, compared to the biggest issue, which really can be distilled in in one quite quite shocking sentence which is one of the best footballers in one of what is considered one of the most advanced you know western democracies or whatever um a world champion with that country at the age of 29 doesn't feel like he can play for his country anymore because of xenophobia anti-immigrant sentiment racism that is incredibly alarming this is 2018 and um this is so the the thing that keeps coming to my mind is I remember when Gerard Asamoah played for Germany. I think in the year two thousand, he was the first black uh, German international, and you know that was I, and that's that's quite late actually still, um, you know. But but you're you're kind of thinking this kind of dual heritage thing is absolutely normal now. It's completely normal. Look in every national team. Look at Belgium. Jim, look at England. Look at, you know, look at the Netherlands. This is completely normal um, now in, in in a lot of countries around the world, not just in Europe. So why isn't it normalised? Why is it still an issue that you know someone's German with Turkish heritage? Why is that a problem? Mm-hmm. That you know somebody can be two things, and you know I, uh, you know, not to make this about me, but eventually when when I have children, they will be of dual heritage as well. And I will certainly bring them up to appreciate both sides of that heritage, to speak both languages, to appreciate both cultures. And, and it's it's really scary that in 2018 we're at this stage where that's that's still not totally accepted. And I guess through my kind of ignorance as a white middle class male, I thought all of this stuff was certainly not solved, not by a long chalk, but moving in the right direction and um yeah it's it's exceptionally alarming and you know the german fa and certain figures have a lot to think about with this yeah i i think what we're starting to see now is the backlash to the backlash so to speak Mm. and there is some support rallying around him which is good to see i mean clive would you say it's fair to suggest that whatever responsibility ozil had for the photograph and i think even as much as we can recognize that Erdogan is a, a repugnant political figure, figure, as far as I am aware, I, I should be very clear in stating that you know I am wading into territory where I am not necessarily an expert, but certainly from where I sit, you know we have just had a World Cup that everybody celebrated in a country with a fairly repugnant political figure himself. Uh, we have a World Cup coming up subsequently in a country where you know being gay is illegal. 
um, where there are significant women's rights issues as well, humanitarian rights violations in terms of building the actual stadia for the tournament. There are all kinds of politics in football that are unsavory. And so highlighting this one certainly feels a little selective. That's not to excuse doing it, but I can say in the NBA here, there's a player, Enos Cantor, who is of Turkish descent, and his family uh, has been given a very hard time. In fact, I think his father was arrested and, and remains in custody in Turkey because Cantor has been critical of Erdogan. So, you know, not to suggest that's why Ozil allowed the photo, and certainly it doesn't seem that way from his uh, statement, but I think to place the blame on him for uh, compromising himself geopolitically is kind of ironic given the geopolitical compromises that are made in football all the time. Do you think that the photo op became good cover for racists to have a go at a player at a time when uh, immigration and dual heritage and xenophobia are all issues that we're seeing a backlash to, especially in Western Europe? Uh, yes, and the biggest uh, thing really that's happening in the world right, right now is division. Right, So when you get a story like this break, I always look at how it's digested. Right, And, and you can you, know, you touched on the fact that we're not experts of the whole situation in Germany, and, and I'm not, so I've read, and I've, I've got all the timelines, but I'm not going to talk to those timelines because... I don't feel it emotionally, what's going on in Germany. But what I do understand is um, about dual identity and how that's received and what I call convenient racism, right? So, um, and there's a convenience to racism now. And um, to be racist when it suits, when the moment suits, right? And there's a, there is a normalization of convenience of racism, which restricts, restricts people's opportunities. And I've read all the information and when Urza was growing up, he um, he didn't get accepted to many clubs because of his background, right? So he was born in Gelsenkirchen, but he was born into a Turkish family. So he was he was seen as a foreigner, even though within that country uh, he was born there. So he, 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 he developed a dual identity. And when he developed a dual identity, sometimes you have no home. And when he played against Turkey, he was booed for not being Turkish. And when he played for Germany, he was suspected of not being German. And I've grown up like that, being a black British person. You're in, in England, you're black, so you're not English. And when you go to the Caribbean, they call you English because you're not you're not black enough. Right. So it's very it's something that dual identity, you almost have no home. Right. So it, and there's a convenience to when people decide to deploy their racist tendencies on you. And I, and I use that word tendencies because everybody doesn't walk around being a racist every minute of every day. They have tendencies that come out on, on certain moments. And for me, it's not even what's happening to Meza Ozil that's a, a concern. It's a, it's a concern and he can use his platform and his 35 million followers to get a message across and drive debate across politics at the highest levels within Germany. And absolutely well done. And, um, and I, everyone supports him, as do I. But what I hope it does is make sure that some people who are not famous for measures or not worth £45 million have the opportunities that he was brilliant enough to accept and actually make happen. But some people have to be as brilliant to get the same opportunities of other people who have a single identity, who have a normal identity, 
that creates some opportunities to get jobs, to get education, to get sporting opportunity. And I hope this debate shines a light on that because that is what's creating division. And division is what's manifesting itself on social media, what's happening in world politics. And I, I don't even look at the, the guy's reputation because the Turkish guy's reputation has changed over the years. He was seen as a partner of Germany. Now he's seen as an enemy. This is not the first time we've had a picture with him. He's had multiple pictures with him going back to 2009, 2010. So this is about convenience. This is about scapegoating. And we saw a little bit of this in England with Raheem Sterling, another player with a dual identity, a Caribbean background, that sees himself as English. But there are certain people in the English media that don't see him as English. They see him as a young black player, a young black individual that's getting above his station. Convenient racist tendencies mm -hmm. to keep people in their place. And that's what's going on here. And when it came down to it, when Ozil wasn't quite the shining star, there are people on the on the so-called right wing that have decided to put him in his place and remind him who he is. And that happened to all aspects of life. And Elliot, we all see, you know LeBron James, billionaire nearly, the most famous top five athlete in the world, if not the most famous top five athlete in the world, came home to his house in Brentwood in, in L.A., and what was sprayed on the outside of his house? Just a reminder, no matter how rich you are, you know your place, mate. Yeah. And that's what's happening. And I hope people, when these stories break, I always look at the how we receive it. And you have to receive it with a level of maturity, holisticness, and understand what's really behind it. This is all about staying in your lane, reducing opportunities, reminding you you're not quite like us. But by the way, when we're winning, we'll accept you and you are exactly who we want you to be. You are German, you are British, you are American, wherever the, wherever the scenario is. But I'm sorry, when the shit hits the fan, we're going to remind you that you're not quite good enough. And yeah. that's what's behind all of this. That's well said. I think, I think it's well said by both of you. And I think it is the unfortunate reality of, of being a modern athlete that... If you want to be loved and embraced, you have to almost disassociate from your identity or your heritage. I remember very famously Michael Jordan had a quote when asked why he doesn't engage in politics and why he isn't more vocal in supporting his community. And I believe the exact quote was, Republicans buy sneakers too. Um, you know, and it's the simple fact that these these battles that we're seeing, whether it's Raheem Sterling or Mesut Ozil or, or LeBron James, as you mentioned here, what's going on with the NFL players and, and the, the national anthem in the United States— they are proxy fights for the cultural soul of Western society. They are lifting a lid on a problem that affects other people every single day, except those other people don't go home to mansions. Those other people don't get paid millions of dollars a month. Those other people are dealing with these issues yeah. on the ground, in the trenches, in a way that is much more brutal and damaging. And so, in a way, I am really thankful for Mesut Ozil and any of these these players who stand up and don't let it happen and push back because it forces us to engage. And Mesut Ozil's statement, while it, it certainly seemed like uh, you know he wanted to burn the whole thing down, has had that impact. It has started the conversation. It has started an important dialogue. And that's not going to fix racism or xenophobia, but certainly it allows it to not operate in the shadows because that's where it grows. It's like a mushroom. You know, it grows in the shadows. Um, I, I go saw ahead, a... Um, a, a, a really just two really quick things i saw a really good tweet you know after france won the world cup and obviously there's there's a lot of kind of dual heritage you know in the france squad 
and uh, lots of people kind of saying, oh, you know, kind of, and, and, and understandably, like saying, you know, this is the celebration of, of immigration and integration. And I just saw someone tweet, controversial opinion, I don't think you should have to win the World Cup to justify your place in society. <laughs> yeah, And uh, I think what you're saying there really strikes at something. Mesut Ozil is one of the best footballers in the world, and he's already won the World Cup with Germany. And even he can't catch a break. So what like what chance does like a baker have in Gelsenkirchen or someone, you know, doing manual labor or something like that? It's really, you know, that the, none the whatsoever. That, yeah. None yeah. Whatsoever. The phrase that came to my mind when Clive was talking, you know, was about, um, you know, some people have to fly to what other people walk to. Um, yeah. And it, it, it reminded me a little bit um so, like jury, uh, so in women's football, for example, there's been a restructure, and basically there are now no top-flight clubs in Yorkshire or the northeast. And there's a big debate in women's football about, well, what what do like young women footballers in Yorkshire and the northeast do now? Because there are no good football clubs there. And uh, Lucy Bronze, who's possibly the most famous English footballer, she's from Sunderland, and she's and you know she put out a very well-meaning tweet, kind of saying, oh, you know, if you do this and you do that. You know, you can be a Champions League winner like me. And it was very well-meaning, and I understood where she was coming from. But I was thinking, like, what about the people whose parents can't drive you for three hours to training? And what about the girls who aren't going to be Champions League winners? What about the ones who just want to be footballers in, in like, the first or second flight or whatever? Like, why, why do you have to be potentially one of the best footballers in the world to justify being a footballer from Sunderland? And there's, there's, a, there's like, a lot of that going on here basically sure, i think sure. clive hit it perfectly with the uh, with the phrase you know tendencies well and and what i will say is that i the idea that you should respond to racism with statistics is absurd i mean when uli honus have i said his name correctly there U- uli uli honus who, who cares sir his his honus um when his honus said those horrific things that he said about mesut Ozil, the response by a lot of people was to cite statistics about his performances and it, it turns me yeah. off in a way because even if he lost the ball every time he touched it even if he missed every shot he took even if every pass was incomplete none of those things justify racism and xenophobia and so i you know i think we should not respond to cries of racism and, and, and racist and xenophobic comments with statistics supporting the performance of the player because it's more about the human being. So I don't think we need to go any further than that, Clive. I'll just leave it with this. Arsenal didn't put out a statement that I'm aware of, but they made some very pointed tweets and social media posts talking about uh, multiculturalism and being all, you know, all together as one. Um, do you feel that they have done their part to make Ozil feel welcome, to respond to this appropriately without necessarily tackling it head-on, or do you think a more forceful, forceful statement was necessary? I think they've tackled it perfectly. Sometimes you just put a little brushstroke statement, and it's up to you to read that statement properly and say, what are they trying to say? And what they're saying is, all's good inside our house. right? That's one thing, and we're going to make, and we're going to keep our eyes on it, and we're going to make sure that's the case. And by the way, he has a place where he can be comfortable. He has to protect his state here and he can come back to our family. I think, unlike Uli Hernis, when you see a message like this, Uli Hernis has shown his immaturity and his blundering personality. And he has looked at it and and viciously come back and spoke about performance. I mean, there's 2,000 words written there in that statement. 
and you're talking about performance. I mean, that says more about you as the individual than it does about the messages that are trying to be relayed by Urzel. And I think, I, I say it and I say it again, the message is as good as the person that receives it. And you have to really receive it and try to understand what's being said. And um, Arsenal have said, rather than try to hit it head on, they said, yeah, we're behind you. We're going to stand with you. And this is just a quick line and you work it out. And that's what, we, that's what we've got to do. And yeah. between that's what we try to do so far on the podcast, to try to relay that message. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, hopefully this unites Arsenal supporters, uh, behind Mesut Ozil, that he feels that love and that family and that home at Arsenal because right now more than ever in his time at the club, Arsenal is his home. Arsenal committed to him with a huge contract. Uh, Arsenal is a place he can get away from the ugliness of what has happened this summer, um, a place where he can hopefully enjoy his football and what is a very talented attacking team at a minimum. And, you know, while it is certainly a secondary consideration when it comes to racism and xenophobia, my hope is that Mesut Ozil really sees and feels the the love and support at Arsenal and that it, it pushes him on to have a, a spectacular season that just further shows these bad people uh, how wrong thinking they are, you know? So go on, mess it, you know, have, have yourself a great season. But again, certainly, even if he has the worst season of all time, still does not justify anything that was said or done to him this summer. Let's move on from there. I think uh, it is well handled. I think you guys have said uh, everything that needs to be said and said it brilliantly, if I do say so myself. So let's uh, let's move on and get to the next fun topic, the departure of Arsenal's CEO. So uh, I don't want to spend a, a huge ton of time on this. I do want to get to the Atleti game. I think there are, there's more fun stuff to talk about. But Tim, Arsenal put out a statement that, as far as I can tell, was like, oh, here's a fire. Let's pour some gasoline on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to release a statement like that and it's not a denial, it's a confirmation. That's, um, you know, you read between the lines uh, in, you know, this is the corporate world we're talking rather than the sporting world. This is a corporate role. And in the corporate world, if you address something and you're not denying it, then you're confirming it. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's all a bit double speak, but that's what happens. Um, <clears throat> do you remember the statement Arsenal put out in the summer of 2010 um, about Cesc Fabregas um, a year before we did end up selling him, but when that was going on all summer? Big statement. This is, you know, we will absolutely not sell to Barcelona. Cesc is staying. Thank you very much and good night. They got Cesc out. You know, he rolled out a couple of lines probably with, um, you know, uh, feeling a cold barrel on his spine, holding up, <laughs> holding up that morning's newspaper in front of the camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of saying, I, "I'm very sorry about all the confusion, and I'm, I'm definitely staying." Um, you know, that that's how you kill it if you want to kill it. If you don't, if you're not killing it, then you're doing something else. You're probably positioning yourself. And I was unsure about the story, and as soon as I read that statement, um, I thought, "Okay, he's going," I, and I think that's what's happening. I think they're positioning this. Um, to say he's going, that I, you know, we, I don't like these statements are not just rushed out. I know I saw a lot of people kind of just going, oh, what, what was the point in that? There was a point to it. Just because we don't know what it is yet, it doesn't mean there isn't. You know, organisations and football clubs don't just throw statements like this out without thinking about them. There would have been meetings. There'd have been a lawyer. A lawyer probably drafted it. Um, if not, definitely had a look at the draft. Uh, with the red pen and all of that, um, you know this this is this is deliberate. When you put out a statement, you don't just like half arse it and go, 
Our, our people on Twitter are a bit antsy. Let's um, let's just put a few lines together. It doesn't happen like that. So there's a reason for this, and we know that the reason is not to deny the story. Therefore, there is something going on. Yeah. Um, with this, my my best guess is that they're kind of going, look, he's probably going to go, and we haven't really like actually like we're not pushing him out the door. It's his choice. That's that's what I would guess. Um, so yeah, I, I am absolutely one hundred percent convinced that he's a goner. Well, and not to mention that I think you you put out a statement like that because you still have business to transact, and yep. you need to at least create. Well, not that they achieved it, but you're trying to create a sense of harmony and continuity during the period of time where you're trying to transact that business. Yeah, um, I and mean, it's, it's it's like any time any manager has been given the dreaded vote of confidence, right? Yeah, you know, the first thing that happens right after an owner comes out and says we're behind the manager completely is he sacked? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it reads like that. You know, the, you know what's missing in this statement? The future tense. It's it's all in the present tense, and that that is that's very very deliberate. Um, as well, so yeah, absolutely. This this to me is uh, stage one, and and he's uh, you know Ivan's not hiding in a cave at the moment. He's on club business in Singapore. There are lots of journalists out there, both British journalists and local journalists. Um, he's you know he's not been in, in a cave. He's been doing commercial activity. I was at um, an event last week where they launched uh, the Legends uh, match officially, and you know the rumours were around. Then he c- could have addressed it. Then didn't. You know, he his words aren't in that statement. This is a club statement, not an Ivan Gazida statement. And I think that tells you everything you need to know. And I'm going to go a little bit Yankee Gunner here. <laughs> but, like, fuck you, Ivan. Because here's a guy who couldn't wait to get in front of the media every chance he got after Arsene Wenger went. And he had a grin from ear to ear when he announced Emery. And those who know don't speak. And those who speak don't know. And every social media post introducing Emery had Ivan Gazidis slick sunglasses on, smirking ear to ear. And when the players showed up at the first practice, it was Ivan Gazidis' hand they're shaking, except hilariously when he patted Ramsey on the arm. Ramsey looked like he had been touched by uh, Slimer from the Ghostbusters. But... (laughs) But all of a sudden, oh, not in any social media posts, not in any interviews, not in any press conferences. You know, I just, I think this is a guy who probably has a wall of all of his press clippings in his house. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I realize this is all a little your dad and I'm piling on and it's business and, you know, maybe he has a huge offer and great. But like, I have a really hard time reconciling the attitude and behavior and, and let's just say it, egotism of the man we saw just a month ago with the idea that he could now be jumping ship. And it, it just doesn't sit right with me. Clive, I know he's arguably your best friend in the world, you know, right up there, one or two. I don't know if he was best man in your wedding yeah. or not. Maybe didn't know him at I that think time. So. So I wasn't sure. Defend your boy, Clive. Been. Defend your boy. <laughs> I'm, I've got no issues in saying that I've, I've felt he's been the most important person in the club for many years. And he was the only person to, to move us forward. And he has done to a degree, but I've also said that he's only a third way through the job, right? And um, and the next bit is to re- redo the board and to sustain this and, and actually go through some adversity and, and sustain this model. And when I first saw these stories, I just laughed it off. I thought, why, why would that happen? You hire people. The first thing those people ask you is, well, are you around for a while? And you normally say, yep, I'm here for the short, medium term, whatever. So when you go and work for somebody, a firm or some people, you find out their motivations. 
So there's a lot of people being hired by him and the people that he's hired. And if he was to walk away now, I think that would be a dereliction. I really do. I feel um, the, the project, I hasten to use that word, but the project <laughs> is really just starting. And there's a freshness and a go-forward feeling around the club. And all of a sudden, this has happened. And it's just not going away. And um, I, I'm starting to think that Tim could be right. Um, there was a there was approach by Nike a few months ago, weeks ago. There was approach by, I'm not sure if it's UEFA or FIFA, a few weeks, months ago. I didn't flinch. And he didn't say a word. They just went away. This approach has been quite bold and it feels different, right? He never said a word about any approaches previously and he hasn't said a word about this one. So is he just being consistent or is he is something really happening? And is there a, is there a play here? Because I feel the play potentially could be strength on the board, the strength to manipulate the board, make changes at that level. Is there a play here? He's made himself not invaluable, but valuable. And um, I think there could be a play going on here, but I don't really know. And my gut feeling is moving towards Tim's position that he could be going. And I, I don't think it's terminal because of the work that's been done. But wouldn't it be a shame that we get our house potentially in order and the key change agent has decided to change and I think that would be a real detriment to his personality and how his time at Arsenal would be viewed. But Elliot, I'm not going for your doubt on this one. I'm not going for Elliot Yankee Gunner on this one. Oh, He's shit. still here, mate. <laughs> He's right. still here. Right. And um, and there has got to nail your colours to the mask, Clive. I mean, that's how this works. <laughs> there is opportunity to just come out and do a statement personally yourself and, and kill this. He hasn't taken the opportunity. The club have given a statement to try to calm the waters while still making sure the light is shining on Ivan and making it up to him to articulate his future. And he hasn't chosen to do that yet, hence why I think Tim could be could be right. But yeah. um, I think, it's look, a shame if that happens. We can take a beat and say it hasn't happened and maybe it won't. Um, I, I would just say that what has happened to this point makes me feel fairly certain that he's probably going to go. And look, I mean, there are rumors that he may be getting an equity stake in AC Milan. I, there are deals that get so sweetened that at some point you can't say no to them. Uh, you know, now you could say that's avarice, that's greed, that he he is so well compensated at Arsenal. But, I mean, to have equity stake in a historic club like AC Milan and, and go and, and work with someone that presumably, from what I understand, he has an actual uh, outside-of-business friendship with, Okay, you, know, you could convince me, talk me into that, but I'm not here for circumspection. I'm here uh, for a knee-jerk reaction. So I'll, I'll stick with my, I'll stick with my original it, comment. You yeah. did it beautifully. Thank you, sir. Way. Thank you. Uh, Tim, just final thought on this. I mean, what is your gut feeling? Not about what he will do, but let's assume for a second he leaves. How how do you view his legacy? How do you, How does this sit with you, his decision to leave us at this point? Um, I, I don't really have an opinion on how it sits with me because I don't I don't know what the offer is from AC Milan. Maybe it is um, maybe it's a kind of once in a lifetime offer. Maybe it's just financially more lucrative. Maybe he's an organisational change kind of guy, and maybe he thinks, Do you know what? 
I've done I've done my bit at Arsenal. Now I want to go somewhere else in Milan. You know, a bit of a sleeping giant at the moment as they get a bit of uh, finance behind them. I understand why that's an attractive prospect trying to return Milan to its former glory. <clears throat> so I, I don't I, I don't have enough of the facts to have like an emotional response to it. Um, I think it's it, it, you know it's not an unmitigated disaster, but I think it's very inconvenient um, for Arsenal to carry. You know, because you don't just go out and appoint a CEO. It takes many months. Uh, it took eight months to get Ivan um, in place after the resignation of Keith, Ed- of Keith Edelman. And uh, we had Ken Fryer kind of step in um, on an interim basis and Arsene Wenger's workload increased. And even Arsene Wenger said, you know, this was untenable, um, the workload I had when we were carrying that role. I mean, that shouldn't happen again because of the structures that have been put in place and on the football side. Who do you think it would be, Raul or Josh? I I don't think it would be Josh just because I don't see the attraction for him. He's got a place on the board. He's got a very involved with the Denver Nuggets back in the States. Exactly, exactly. And he'd have to drop that. And that's why I don't think he'd do it. And also, you know, why would you? You've already got a place on the board. You've got a nice little salary. And it's not your name above the door, Um, you know. And it probably wouldn't be much of a pay rise for him to go into the CEO role, um, you know, particularly if he dropped his role with the Nuggets. So I, I don't see that happening. I think it would probably just be Raul would would sweep up, you know, the football relations side and maybe we'd just carry it for eight months. And that's that's not ideal, particularly when we've just replaced the manager after 22 years. So to lose a manager and a CEO in the same summer is is in any organisation would find that tough you know not insurmountable not a complete and utter crisis but difficult yeah and you know with Unai Emery he's just come in he doesn't really speak the language yet and you know Ivan's his kind of right hand man to lose that that little bit of the structure so early um, might be a little bit unset well it will be a little bit unsettling for him um, and it would remain to be seen how he dealt with that um However, yeah, I, I think carrying the CEO role for basically the whole of next season, which is basically what would happen, is um, is undesirable. I think maybe next summer, we, or if Ivan served like a year's notice from this point, then cool, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's not Ivan I'm attached to. It's, it's the role. The role, I think, is important. Um, as for what it would mean for his legacy, completely unfinished. His, his legacy completely depended on how he saw through this project and if he doesn't see it through then there's there's no legacy one way or the other as far as i'm concerned and um you know i, I don't mean that in a in a kind of um in in a way to like try and be hurtful but i mean i, I think that's just the fact his legacy is neutral if he goes now yeah i mean i i think look he did presumably put Rao and Sven in place but i think almost all of his legacy would be dependent on what happens from this point going forward yep. to some extent and sort of leave yep. now. Yeah, you get, as they used to call it back in the school days, an incomplete um, yeah. in terms of legacy. Clive, final word? Yeah, I, I was going to just follow that on, really. What I was really looking forward is seeing this team in action, this team of people, this team, you know, with, with Darren Burgess, with Raul, with Sven, with, with Gazidis. And, and, we, and he spoke about the team. He spoke about shared responsibility. And I've waited for this for such a long time. And then basically... It's here. We're just about to kick football on grass. And the lead man of the team, the most senior person of the team, has decided he doesn't like the team, potentially. That doesn't feel good. Right? That doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel noble to me. 
Um, but like I say, I'm not going to do what I'm not going to go all premature, Elliot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm going to wait. <laughs> I, I usually do go premature, but I at least have one daughter to prove that it doesn't always happen. Okay, <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to go premature. I'm going to hold it, man, and see what happens. And uh, let's well, see. Aren't you the Casanova of the podcast? Okay, look, we're going to leave it there. Um, here's what we got coming up. We are 35 minutes into this conversation. We're still going to talk about Awobi. We're still going to talk about Ramsey. We're still going to talk about the athletic game. Um, lots to get to, and we're still going to hear about Tim's book, which every one of you is obligated to purchase. But before we do that, because we're going to talk about Awobi and his new deal, I want to get Scott onto the pod for 10, 15 minutes to just give you a statistical look at who this player is that we've just re-signed so we can come back and draw definitive conclusions about what we did. So we'll talk to Scott, we'll come back, and then we will break down the new deal for Awobi. And- a jail, clips inserted, a baby's being born, same time a man is murdered, the beginning and end. As far as rap go, it's only natural, I explain my plateau, and also what defines my name. First it was nasty, the times have changed, actually now I'm the artist, but hardcore my signs for pain. I spent time in the game, kept my mind on Okay, so Scott is here to tell us everything we need to know about Alex Awobi so we can form definitive opinions on the new contract that he has signed. Uh, Scott is on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. He has a Patreon page uh, because he is a living, breathing human being. It is patreon.com forward slash oh that crab. And you can get access to his advanced uh, statistics that he collects and see the work he's doing. And uh, it is for Arsenal uh, predominantly, but also for the league and, and wider European football. So definitely go there. And, and uh, if you like that kind of stuff, support him. Scott, great to talk to you. Great to talk to you as always. Sure. Well, thanks for saying it anyway. So, look, I have to admit that I am torn on Alex Awobi. It's not that I dislike him. I just sort of wonder if he's going to make it, whatever make it means at Arsenal. Um, And I I think there's an open question as to the role he's going to play this season. But I want to talk to you specifically about what kind of player you see in the statistics about his performances uh, that he might be. And then maybe if the statistics sort of suggest a position where he might thrive going forward so first and foremost have you seen an improvement and what elements statistically really stand out for Wobi in terms of what he's contributing on the pitch sure um so the the biggest thing that, that stands out for me for Wobi is his passing um looking at the passing stats even you know among players that are under 21 so his age group um he ranks as one of the the top passers in all of europe um, so that's something that just right off the top in what, that really surprises me. In what context? Uh, accuracy, uh, effectiveness in the final third. I mean, what, what passing statistics really jump off the page for you? So um, I have one of them that's actually like a, an agglomeration of stats. So it looks at um, the different percentages that you do in the different thirds of the pitch. Um, includes long passing. It includes you know your ability to progress the ball effectively. Um, and then your ability to get the ball into the box. Um, and it also looks at you know the percentage that each of you um, that you do in those sections and in those that he actually um, comes out um, as one of the the top passers under 21. Um, he's actually in the top 50 wow. um, even overall. Um, so I have him at you know a 127. So um, 100 would be um, completely average. Um, and so he's about 27% better than average um, in his age group. Um, really, the only people that rank better than him would be uh, Marco Asensio from uh, Real Madrid, uh, Leroy Sané, and Joshua Kimmich. Um, so he's really up there um, among players. Um, what what about in terms of all players of all ages? Who are some of the players bracketing him in, you know, just above or just below him in terms of those metrics? Sure. Let me just clear that filter real quick, and then we can yes, take please a look do. at I might uh, I might buy you a new processor 
for your server or your your computer. I, I really should, yeah. I seven or whatever the kids are using today. Exactly. Go start a GoFundMe for you know a, a power processor. Yeah. Okay. What do you got? All right. So the the players around him here. So we got uh, Marcelo Brozovic. Um, we got Jesse Lingard, uh, Julian Draxler, Kingsley Komen, Andres Iniesta. So I mean, he he's really in some of the elite names um, and, in and that you know one twenty seven to one thirty range. Are predominantly forwards or attacking midfielders. So you know, it sounds like he he maps out from a passing standpoint really nicely with. Uh, more uh, attacking players more, and players in more advanced positions. Now, to be fair, that's where he's been deployed. But I've sort of felt that where he's been more effective and where he potentially can be more effective is deeper in midfield. And one of the reasons I felt that way is he's big and strong. He can dribble. He can get out of tight spaces. I mean, he's not particularly switched on defensively, which we you know we can touch on maybe a little bit later. But I guess the the reason I felt that way too is that my eyes tell me that he's not great at finding a final ball, whether that's with the shot or the pass. So statistically, is that an area where he could improve in terms of his uh, chance creation or chance finishing? You know, so I was actually looking at that too because that's something that I've always felt is probably one of the weaker spots, um, his ability to actually do either the final pass or to get on the end of chances. Um, so again, I was looking at you know his age group and I was looking at overall shot contribution. So that would be um, key passes and shots per 90. Um, and so he actually last season was at 3.8 um, per 90. Um, so that's, that's not bad. Um, I think that comes in about 20th um, in his age range. Um, so it's going to get, you know, Julian Brandt is right there. Kingsley Komen is right there next to him. Um, Deli Alley um, is just a 0.1, uh, you know, more than him. So he's at 3.9. Um, and I think actually the, the Deli Alley role um, would actually be something that would, you know, be something that I think a Wobi could do better um, or kind of uh, look to mirror his game on something like that. Someone that's a little bit more advanced can do um, a little bit of the, the midfield and also do attacking. Uh, he, to me, he has all of the skills to to be able to do that. Uh, it just hasn't quite put it all together. And part of it is, you know, he only played um, eighteen hundred minutes last year in the league. And sometimes, you know, you just need that little bit more playing time. And it's I know it's hard to be able to do that sometimes with uh, younger players when you know there's people that are necess- are, are better than him. But to be able to to grow, he probably needs more of those minutes. And I think that's something. Um, where we have the Europa League, where he can actually really be one of the main guys, I think, and have a chance to really impress. Yeah. Well, he he doesn't, I would assume, jump off the page in terms of defense statistics, although you, you wouldn't necessarily expect that from someone who's been deployed in a more advanced role. I I have always felt that he struggles off the ball a little bit, both in terms of in possession and out of possession, in terms of making himself available, but also in terms of you know covering his man, interceptions, and, and not just interceptions, but sort of uh, tracking his marker. I, I guess that's something that's difficult to track statistically. Is there anything there that makes you uh, feel strongly that that might or might not be the case statistically, or, or even just sort of your personal opinion? Do you see similar deficiencies off the ball? It's definitely something that you, you do notice when you're watching the game that he's a lot more, I guess, keyed on to doing the offensive things and not so much with the, with the defense. Um, you know, you look at, you know, the number of tackles that he attempted last year. It was just 1.6 per 90, um, you know, completing less than one um, tackle per game. So really not great. Um, 
a lot of times, yeah, he's kind of just loafing around waiting for um, Arsenal to get back into possession. And then he seems to really kind of, you know, trigger that, oh, I need to start playing now. So it is definitely a frustration. Um, there were certain times last year where, you know, he actually did seem to be engaged on defense and, you know, he flashed like the ability to be able to do it. Because like you were talking about, he has all of the physical skills to where you'd think that he'd be able to do it. He's a big, strong player. Um, and it's just a, the mental part of being able to do that because defense is hard. It's not fun. And, you know, not many people like to do it. Um, but I think that's something that if he wants to be able to excel at Arsenal, that he needs to be able to get that um, into his head. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, his engine is something that could could improve. I mean, I, I think he can be a hard runner at during periods of the game, but around the hour mark, he does seem to fade. I'm not sure why that is. I mean, he certainly seems fit. You look at him, you don't see a guy who's carrying extra weight, but he just seems to struggle in the latter part of the game. I don't imagine that you track the statistics in terms of you know his performance on a minute-by-minute basis. That's probably difficult to do, but uh, would you agree that one of the things he's going to have to improve on is just his general fitness. Um, you know, that's not something that I've necessarily noticed too much that, it, um, but again, I guess I haven't, you know, that's not something that I've you know, keyed in on watching. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something, you know, I if you went back and watched the games, you could probably go through with a, a more scouting kind of a thing and tried to, to put that in. I, I, have um, to- I don't have it broken out by, by minute, you know, when, you know, when he completes tackles and that kind of thing. And I think that would actually be a, a tough thing to look at because again, it's, you know, less than 2000 minutes in the league. So it's, you know, you're looking at small samples and then he's right. also um, a lot of those were sub appearances where he came in. So it's like, well, is that going to, you know, kind of skew things towards the earlier part of, you know, the, the minutes he plays and it, yeah. So that would just, I mean, I think you'd want to look at more of a, scouting-wise instead of through stats. Well, and I fully acknowledge it. When I sit and watch a football game, I'm watching it like a professional scout with that scouting eye on, and not the average football supporter doesn't really have the ability to watch that way. So I you know, I have to be a little bit considerate of that, obviously. Um, all kidding aside, I, I think... See, it, it, yeah. it to, we all need to be like Paul and you know, watch it a second time with that scouting eye the second time. It, no, Paul only watches it a second time to look for opportunities to make sexual innuendo. That's really all he's doing there. Um, in terms of... Uh, position, he does seem to perform much better from one flank to the other. Is that something that you've seen? I, I think, you know, he struggles more, uh, and I'm I'm going to get it backwards, I feel like, because of my scouting eye being, you know, so keenly focused. Uh, on, on the left flank, whereas on the right flank, he seems to be uh, a much stronger player. Do I have that backwards? I, I, that's my been my impression as well, too, yeah. that I think he's, he's better from the right. Um, so to me, it would almost be that, that Mkhitaryan role. Um, would be something that perhaps could suit him. Um, something that's, you know, uh, a forward you can cut in. Um, that still gives him license to be in the center of the pitch, but he doesn't have the full responsibility of being, um, you know, the main creator with uh, that number 10 role. Um, and then also it's going to be interesting how Emery kind of deploys the team. Is he going to go with the, the more 4-3-3 where there isn't really the the true number 10? It's really more two wide forwards and three central midfielders. I, I know when I watched the, the game today, it seemed kind of a, a fluid 4-3-3 base where, you know, there's, you know, the opportunity for people to, to go into that pocket. Um, which I think I kind of like, but it'll be interesting when Ozil's there because I know that's something that he really likes. So it's going to be a, an interesting season to watch. And I yeah. think, yeah. If nothing else, that alone is exciting. I, I definitely think it's going to be a, a tricky season in terms of oh, we'll be getting 
first team action in the big games in Premier League and Europa League knockout, assuming we make it to that, which I think you'd have to assume we will. So he's going to have to probably really shine in those Europa League group games, League Cup, and maybe early FA Cup games to make an argument for himself to get into some of those bigger league games because you look at, you know, as you mentioned, Mkhitaryan, Lacazette, Aubameyang, Ozil, Ramsey, Torreira, Shaka. I mean, there's, there's what, seven for six positions there, really? Um, and so you'd think Awobi might be the eighth, depending on where you put El Elneny in, in the group and, you know, maybe Maitland-Niles knocking on that door. So he's got an improved contract. The club is committed to him, but he's certainly going to have to make his position safe if he wants to not only progress, but even really, I would say, maintain his role in the squad. So it will be a really interesting season for a player that Arsenal has tied down. And I think, look, whatever you think of the contract, Scott, I think it's fair to say a player his age with his talent, it almost just makes sense to, I I hate to say it this way, I realize, you know, football is not a business, but to protect the asset value, right? I mean, at this point, we don't know what he's going to develop into, but certainly we don't want to be in a position where we're losing another young player on a free or for a minimal transfer fee if that were to happen. Exactly. I think that's actually even the the bigger reason why this makes sense, because he still has all of the tools there. We're not really sure what we have as a player. He's down, you know, I think he was at uh, 2020 was his contract expiring. So he's right in that that spot where you need to make that decision. Um, do we want to extend him? Do we want to sell him? Because you really don't want to wait for one one year to go because then it makes it a lot easier and you put a lot more pressure on the team, you know, as we're seeing with Aaron Ramsey. Um, you know, with the, the contract negotiations. But if you know, you're two years out, it's a lot easier to say, hey, we're going to you know, extend that contract for a couple more years. So you have two more years, basically, before you're in the same position again, where you have to, to really make a decision. And, you know, he's at that age. He's going to be 22 this season. So two more years from now, he's still going to be just entering his prime as an attacking player. And, you know, if you don't feel that he's at the, the level for Arsenal, you still have plenty of opportunity to, to sell him on to, you know, a mid-table club or, you know, overseas. And you, you'll still be able to, to make good money off of him. Um, but, you know, you're not looking at, you know, need to make a decision on an unfinished player player right now. Um, you still have that chance to, to hold on to him. You know, he's still... Um, is a homegrown player, so it's not like he's taken a, a spot from somebody. So right. I, I, to me, it makes it makes perfect squad building sense. Um, he's in that 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 wage range where he's not going to be an automatic starter, and he should be fine um, with being maybe a, a guy who makes sub appearances, gets cup games, uh, plays the Europa League, um, and, and you know if he, he impresses, he can you know take a spot from somebody. Yeah, I think if you want to take the the best view of this. You say the downside is limited, right? I mean, the downside is you have a reasonably experienced young player who can play Europa League and League Cup games and is homegrown and, you know, could be sold on for reasonable money if it doesn't work out. The upside is he does kick on. He does take that immense talent that seems to be in there and and figure out how to add the few missing pieces and become someone really special. And the time and money we've invested in him really pays off in a big way. So strategically, it makes a lot of sense. And Scott, I want to thank you for coming on and giving us this statistical look uh, at it. And, you know, we will certainly be talking to you in future podcasts. You're going to want to follow Scott on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. And if you want to hear more great statistics uh, about Arsenal players, European football, the Premier League, all those good things, you should uh, contribute to his Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash oh that crab. Scott, thanks, and we'll talk to you in a future podcast. All right, thank you. And of course, NAS are the letters that spell. Not
Okay, so we're back. We're going to just spend a moment really quickly adding to what Scott uh, said about Iwobi and statistically who he is as a player, but I just want to get some quick thoughts on his decision to stick around at the Arsenal and Arsenal's decision to uh, stick with him. So, uh, Clive, I'll start with you. I think the interesting thing here is we've we've doubled his wage, but certainly not to anything that is uh, outside the bounds of what a regular first-team player at a top six uh, should we say top four clubs should be making. So I don't, I don't think we've put ourselves in a difficult situation with him. We've secured an asset that could be a valuable asset for selling down the road if we are so inclined. Um, we've prevented ourselves from getting into the dreaded last year of the contract situation with him. So I think there's a lot of sort of practical implications of what we've done. But just your gut instinct in terms of where his career goes from him uh, from here would you have preferred to see us sell if, let's say, the Lazio interest was real? Would you would you have cut bait with him at this point, or are you happy to see him stick around? Uh, I'm I'm okay with him sticking around. And what this really tells me there's a, there's a change in contractual behaviour at the club, and um, the Callum Chambers one is an interesting one. You know, extending his contract significantly at a time when there was not too many people of concern knocking our door down to to buy him, right? And and the same with Huobi, a little bit of whispers around uh, Lazio. And suddenly, a few days later, very similar type behaviours. Another contract drops in, and twenty five percent or so rise, whatever you want to believe. And I think it's moving, it's changing our how we how we're looking at these assets, and we're looking to retain them. And I think that's good. You know, how many times have we seen Spurs four year contract, five grand rise, right? And I think that's that type of movement, regular increments on the contract, but making sure the time. He's always three, four years. You've got that player secured. So if there's an explosion in form, you're going to get paid, right? So I think that's really where we're going. So we're changing our behaviours. What we haven't seen yet in this new regime is how we sell. We haven't seen that yet. And that's going to be interesting. How we sell, what's our price point, how aggressive we're going to be. That's going to be the interesting phase. I think that's a great point. Yeah, because just to jump in real quick, Clive, again, to be on brand there, uh, it it just whether you love a Wobi or not, you know, and maybe you just think 25 million euros is a nothing fee at this point, so why bother selling? But we do fall in love with our players, and at some point to renew your squad, especially when you're sitting on a lot of older players who will have no resale value, you are going to have to pick some assets to unload. Yeah, exactly. And I think we are in a situation where we have sold in a t- from a terrible leverage position historically. We were fortunate to get 40 million for Oxlade Chamberlain, really. It sort of fell into our laps. But let's look at some of the people that we've sold. It's just we've been chucking about the door of a set of tracksuits and, and some food associated to the price. It's just a joke. You know what I mean? So, um, hey, look, I've been so, reading about Brexit, and apparently food is going to be a hot commodity. So maybe maybe you shouldn't make light of that, buddy. <laughs> we've, we've, been giving, we've been giving a hamper away with some of our players. It's, 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 honestly, it's ridiculous. And and then you look, at some, you look at some of the sales that are going on in other clubs, and they are really selling well and then using those funds to rejuvenate the squad and we have not done that and so these contracts i think they're a precursor to sales or big loans where the value of that player will increase and so i'm predicting that there's going to be a different behavior around selling so looking at Iwobi himself he's a player that causes debate what is he uh, what is he going to be what is he going to be his position you know, he's a nice player that does nice things sometimes. And he's got some growing to do. I don't think him signing a contract has changed that. I just think he's an asset to the club. 
and that we are making sure we secure. And his future is no more secure after his contract than it was before it. But at least Arsenal can control that asset. And I think that's really important. That's what's behind this. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, we always presume that these new contracts mean it's a commitment to the club, uh, to the player's future at the club. But sometimes a smart club, a well-run club, offers these contracts to also protect the asset value. You know, and I, I really look, football shouldn't always be discussed as a business, but I think we can all be grown-ups enough to recognize that it has to be a well-run business to be a successful uh, sporting enterprise. So, Tim, what is it what we have to do this season? Where does he have to improve? What position does he have to make his? What is his opportunity to go from the fringe of the first team? I mean, this is a player who two seasons ago had kind of become one of the first names on the team sheet. And then went through a struggle. I mean, if you remember, he was playing that sort of, uh, in the back three, he was playing one of the two behind the striker. Um, you know, he, he was playing, kind of linking up with, with Alexis and Ozil really nicely. And then he kind of fell out of favor. What does he have to do to kick on and, and make himself an important part of this squad again? And what position could you see him maybe making his own if, if he were to do that? So the things he's got going for him, <clears throat> first of all, he's one of the very few dribblers we have in the squad, and that's very, very important. I still think that's a massive, massive flaw in this squad um, that should be addressed before the transfer window shut. I think if it isn't, um, then I think it's something we're going to start pointing to very, very soon, and we're going to get to October, and we're going to start going, oh, no, we can't wait until January till we can buy someone who can actually beat a player. It's very valuable for a team like Arsenal to have a player like that, unless they do kind of, you know, a bit Tottenham, Liverpool style, you know, not kick and rush football, but, you know, unless they completely change and do away with build-up play like those teams do, then they need a player like that and they don't have many and he's one of them. The other thing he's got going for him, I think, in, in you know, to answer the question on position, Jack Wilshere's gone. Jack Wilshere played a lot of games last season. He started a lot of games. He was a member of the first team and quite often a member of the starting eleven. And presumably, that was because, again, he was one of the few players who could, I mean, at least in theory, um, carry the ball. And um, unfortunately, Jack's just not good enough anymore to do that um, to the level that we require. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's, if I was Alex Awobi, I'd be looking at that and thinking, yeah, there's there's a bit of a jack-shaped hole in this team now. Santi's gone, Rosicki's gone, Chamberlain's gone, Sanchez is gone, Walcott's gone. All of these kind of direct, quite dribbly players um, have gone. So I think for his profile, um, there is something there. I also think that, you know, in some of those forward positions, a lot of our forwards are 29 and in a year or two, we're going to have to start thinking about replacing them. So I think it makes sense to keep Iwobi on, give him another two years, see if he can, you know, if he can potentially replace one of those positions. And if he can't, I mean, I, I view his contract a bit like Callum Chambers. It's it's a trial, basically. It's, you know, have another two years. Let's see where you are in two years' time. If you haven't kicked on, you're not going to lose a lot of value. You're not costing us a lot in salary. We'll just move you on. Otherwise, potentially... You know, you could you could help replace one of those positions. I, I think where he has to improve is in big spaces. I think he's good in tight spaces. He's good at dribbling away from pressure. He's good at like using a mixture of his body and his close control to get out of tight spaces. Um, I think he's good at defending small spaces as well. He's good at 
you know, facing up an opponent and pressing them. He's he's quite bad, or he's not as good in big spaces. Mm-hmm. So um, Tim, could, Tim, can I just, can I, just I, I agree with you 100%, Tim. So I actually mm. think what he's got to do this year, he's got a choice. Do I play at the top third, or do I play mm. as one of the one of the two eights? Absolutely. And everything everything you've described tells me he's a one of the two eights. I agree. Do you see what I mean? And yeah. I think he's a small space player. I think as soon as he's got to run more than 15 yards, his head goes back and he runs like John Inman. Right? Yeah. So he, he's got no style for big spaces. But put him in a small space. He can move you. He can boss you. He can dribble you. He can move it. He's got quick feet, quick pictures. He has got to decide. He's got all that. And plus, he can burst out of a small space into a big space and then release it. Put him in the big space, he feels stressed. And I think for him this year, he has to decide, am I an 8 or am I an 11? Mm. And for me, mate, you're an 8. And you need to start working on your off-the-ball intensity. Because everything you described there, Tim, is exactly what we need. Exactly what we hope Jack Wilshere was. But he's got it with weight and power and size. Yeah. Um, and, uh, is it is it is it possible that he's just agoraphobic? I mean, <laughs> like maybe that's it. Maybe or, or, just get. Yeah. Or maybe the opposite. I don't know what the opposite is. I, I don't um, either. Yeah. yeah <laughs> maybe he just becomes really anxious in open spaces. He really likes those small spaces. <laughs> but, but that's what, no agoraphobic, <laughs> right? He gets anxious in the big because yeah. claustrophobic would be the one where you're yes, you're, right. So yes, he's, yes, he's, you're he's, right, he's, maybe he's right, agoraphobic. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, good. I'm glad yeah. we cleared up the, the serious point there. I will say you mentioned <laughs> Jack Wilshire, and uh, if you're a fan of like late Elvis. Um, there is a really sad social media post on the West Ham Twitter account where they posted a, I guess it was supposed to be a highlight reel of Jack in a, in a preseason game for West Ham. And if you were ever concerned that maybe we made the wrong choice, uh, cue up that video because it's, it's sad. It's, it's hard to watch. In any event, uh, let's move on from a will because we, we are nearing the meat of the podcast uh, as we drift towards the hour mark. Uh, but before we get to the meat, let's get to Ramsey. So, Tim... Uh, Aaron Ramsey is a player that I absolutely adore. Uh, I think he is special. I think he can do things that other players cannot do from midfield position. But he is entering the final year of his deal, and there's no deal, and the window closes in a couple of weeks. Give me your 30,000-foot view of how you see this shaking out. So I think the lack of transfer rumors and the fact that there is um, a conversation going on suggests to me that there is a willingness to sign a contract, but there's a high level of brinkmanship going on here. Ramsey is the house here. He is the casino. He cannot lose. He can ask for whatever he wants. And if Arsenal want to do it, they have to do it before August the 9th, before the window closes. And if they decide to walk away, they have to sell him and then they have to use the money to buy someone else. And, And maybe that's why... We're hearing about, you know, Gomez a little bit from Barca. I get the impression that maybe that's on the back burner um, just in case and they're ready to pull the trigger if they need to, um, which is, you know, putting aside whatever you think of the player, which is smart enough. But what, do you, what do you say to the lose. people who say we can't force him to go somewhere else, that he's going to play out his contract so he can go get a big money deal on a free and we have no way to prevent that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. and some of his comments today kind of hint at that, don't they? They say, you know, he says something it's my like, decision. oh, yeah. well, he also says, oh, you know, but I'll give my all this season, you know, yep. with the kind of I'll stay for this season, whatever. And I'm sure Arsenal are sitting there in the background and thinking mm, we might have something to say about that. Um, actually, you're right. They can't force him. And that's, you know, we're let's not dress it up. We are we are at the roulette table here. 
and we're about to lose our shirts. Um, Ramsey can't lose because basically either Arsenal just do what they had to do with Ozil, what they had to do with Walcott when those were getting down to the wire, where they basically just give up everything. Over- overpay, so, yeah, let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here's everything you want because, you know, we can't not do this at the moment. Um, or it doesn't get done and he goes into the final year and he probably gets an even better contract somewhere else. Um, or he gets sold this summer and let's say he'd be amenable to that. He probably got, gets what he wants somewhere else as well. So either of those three scenarios works out for Aaron Ramsey and his agents know that. He knows that. His advisors know that. Um, for Arsenal, they need either sign or sale um basically and and you know i think i'd heard like two weeks ago that basically arsenal had put uh, you know a kind of take it or leave it offer down um they haven't announced the captain um as yet they've kind of fudged that issue because I he think was captain against atleti he he was he was probably the most natural just because some of the players that were missing um, but Emery was asked about it and he kind of fudged it. He said, well, Koscielny, I think, is the captain. And I respect that. But they haven't formally announced it um, as yet because I think that's maybe part of the deal. Uh, it's obviously something that's potentially important to him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, basically the, the way I see it is I, I don't know if I think it will get done. I, I do think there is a willingness but I think, you know, maybe maybe we set a precedent with this Ozil and Sanchez thing. And Ramsey doesn't have to lift a finger or his agents don't have to lift a finger. And basically, they're just sitting there saying, yeah, OK, um, give us what we want. And it's all signed. Um, and Arsenal, that puts the ball in Arsenal's court. They've got a decision to make whether they walk away and start brokering a sale or whether they do what they did with Ozil and just, um, just give it up and overpay. Yeah, well... I'm going to give you a tough choice, Clive. Let's say we can't sell him, that he, you know, for one reason or another, will not agree to it. Which would you prefer as an outcome? We overpay him with a monster salary, or we let him play out this season on his current contract and let the chips fall where they may next summer? I think we have to change our selling identity. Right, there's been see, too see, many players. I don't remember change our selling identity as one of the two choices I gave you. But okay. Yeah, but it, I, I get annoyed by all this. I really get annoyed by all this. I think, you know, I have no, you know. Yeah, they're all replaceable. Uh, they're all replaceable, right? I'm, I'm sorry, right? There were people crying themselves to sleep over Jack Wilshere just a few weeks ago. We saw a player stick one in the top corner today, and I didn't see any Jack Wilshere messages on my timeline. Right, that's how quickly it changes. Right, just like that. When talent hits you in the face, you can't ignore it. And there's talent everywhere. So let's not get hung up on on players that have talents that are replaceable. There are some special players with special special talents. I'm, I think Aaron Ramsey is a very good footballer. I don't think he's a special footballer. Okay, but we do uh, have to do uh, something, right? I mean, you're equivocating a little bit. My my question is, okay, so let me, if I'll we tell you can't what I would, sell him, would you let him yeah. play out his contract? Uh, well, we, we have to, up to a point. We tried to sell him. I don't see the market. I said this months ago. Do you see a market for no. him? I don't see a market. Do you see someone else trying to buy him for 50 million quid? No, I, and I mean, a, that's why I didn't even give you the option to sell, because I, I think... 
you know, obviously, if we can get $50 million for him and he won't sign a deal, then the choice is easy, in my opinion. I think you would totally agree with that. But if we can't get a reasonable fee for him, see, I, and I, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but would you capitulate, as Tim hinted at, not Tim saying we should do that, but where we'd be stuck doing it, would you give him the two hundred and twenty grand a week, or would you just let him play out his contract? If he got Aubameyang money, it, it, I don't think he's too bad i don't think he's done much to deserve it but i don't think he's too bad okay i think they've come in and they're they're similar age bracket maybe a year or two older and if he wants that level of money i say well you know what let's do it let's control the asset but if he doesn't want to sign if he wants more than them i think at some point you've got to make a stand and say we we won't be played anymore this is a new team a new regime we're not going to be played it's going to cost us this time but it won't cost us in the future because historically, this has cost us many, many times. We've wasted many, many millions. There comes a point where you've got to say, enough. This is not going to happen. We're, so, we're showing signs of signing people on for longer, earlier. This is how we're going to roll from now on. We're not letting anybody get down to two years. If you don't go at two years, you're out. right? And we need to start and, and maybe feel some pain now for the longer-term betterment of the club. Because we're being taken for a ride at the moment and it's i yeah. find it embarrassing and and you know what clive it, it's kind of funny because people people got on arson Wenger's case for basically everything he said towards the end of his career but he made a point where he said i think you're going to see more and more that players run their contracts down that you know players get themselves in a position where they can get these bosman contracts or you know where they where they have more of the leverage and you know people kind of made fun of him a little bit because they saw it as being a, a defensiveness, you know, a, an excuse for letting the Alexis and Ozil situations get to the point they did. But he may be right. And Aaron Ramsey has a lot of the leverage here. And unfortunately, that causes clubs to make decisions that they wouldn't necessarily make. What I will say is, I do think Ramsey's a saleable asset. I do think if he has a monster year this year, you may see some of those 50 million bids come in for him. And giving him a, a, a good contract this year... You know, I don't know that it hurts you too much if he does blow up and have an amazing season and then he does become saleable and you have to go on to sell him. Now, what I don't understand is what happened to the idea, like what Liverpool did with Suarez. What happened to the, we'll give you two hundred grand a week on a four-year deal and we'll put a $40 million release clause in it or £40 million release clause in it or €40 million, Euro, whatever. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like what happened to the idea of, you may not want to stay here. We'll put a release clause. So if someone really wants you and you want to go there, they can trigger that release clause. But we, we need to protect your value as an asset and we'll pay you well in the interim. I, I Those seem like you know, deals that should be able to get done. Very smart, Elliot. But you know what they knew, Liverpool knew? They knew they had multiple buyers in the market. Right, and we don't, yes. I, I That's fair. But, I mean, that should only make you would think Ramsey interested in wanting to protect you know, his right turn. Because the other thing Ramsey has to worry about – he, he isn't exactly the picture of health. You know, and if Ramsey plays out his contract this season and picks up two pretty bad hamstring injuries along the way that cause him to miss half the season, is someone going to come in and offer him two hundred and fifty grand a week next summer for free? I don't know that they are. Anyway, let's move off of it. It's, it's, it's a situation that's going to run for at least another couple of weeks, I would imagine, and one that we don't have all the information about right now, so all we can do is speculate, and rampant speculation is certainly something we love to do. Anyway, uh, there was a game that was played. And I think we would all agree, Tim most of all, that drawing concrete conclusions from preseason friendlies <laughs> is what you want to do. And I, I think, you know, the fact that we are committed to continuity is seen no more clearly than just months after having done it before, dominating Atleti in a loss. So, I, you know, I think that was, that was good. We like to have some continuity at the club, you know, class and all and all that. Tim? 
you know, maybe the best reminder not to get over your ski tips on rating young talent is the fact that on a day when we saw some young talent flash some skills, Jeffrey and Adelaide was announced to be departing Arsenal. So it's a good mm. reminder not to get ahead of yourself, but let's get ahead of ourselves. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I think we can talk generally about this game in a moment, but I want to get to some of the young talent. So let's move through it quickly. I, the three that I have written down to discuss are Gwenduzi, uh, Emil Smith-Rowe, and Nelson. So uh, dealer's choice, which which one of those do you want to tackle first? Um, I'll go with uh, Nelson. All right, so, so let me give you my quick take. Nelson is one of these guys that everybody who watches the youth setup raves about him, raves about him, electrifying talent, a guy who's going to make it, a guy we have to keep at the club. Every time I watch him, it's not that I think he's bad. I just don't see that eye-popping talent. I mean, he had a couple nice dribbles, a couple good bursts, but he doesn't really take these lower-level games by the scruff of the neck, and it was a, a significantly weakened athletic team. How do you feel about him? Do you think when he's had his first team chances that he's shined the way he needs to? Um, I, I think it remains to be seen, um, to be honest. Mo- most of the games he's played for the first team so far have been at right wing back, which I don't That's think fair. gets the yeah, best out of him. Good point. Um, I, I think also when he played for the under-23s, he was a slightly more prominent player. I He wasn't like... So in the first team, because of his skill set, we're kind of asking him to be Oxlade-Chamberlain, which I think is... You know, which I think is kind of fair enough because you know this team could do with a bit of a natural winger. But actually, when you watch him play for the under twenty threes, he comes inside a lot more. He gets involved a lot more. He often plays from the left. Um, he actually reminds me a lot of when I was watching Serge Gnabry in the under twenty ones, as it was then. You know, Gnabry played a bit more like a number eleven, but who really came in field and played as a bit of a ten. Whereas Nelson, we're asking him to be a bit more chalk on the boots um, kind of style, which I think is fine. And I think he can develop um, into that. I, I think it remains to be seen, but, um, you know, maybe a bit like Iwobi. I think there's a real opening um, for Reese Nelson because we have so few players um, of that profile. And what, what was really interesting, I think, about the way the attack was structured today was usually Emery's teams, um, you know, they have like a central striker who kind of stays up and then their two wide forwards come inside uh, quite a lot and they create a triangle. What it looks like Arsenal are going to do is like slightly invert that triangle. Um, It was Lacazette who was kind of dropping off and, you know, trying to drag centre-halves out with him. And then it was Aubameyang and Nelson, you know, playing that real, almost like, you know, uh, kind of when Bergkamp's dropping off and then he's got Omri on the left and Lundberg on the right um, to pick out. And I, I'm not necessarily comparing those these I, players. I would like hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, you know, it goes without saying that Lacazette's not going to give you a through ball like Bergkamp. But it, but it's a similar principle to like when we had um, like an Elka and Overmars. You've got pace on one side, pace on the other. Lacazette doesn't actually have that much pace, um, I don't think, but kind of pops out to link up by... But in doing so, takes a centre half with him, um, and it's and the wide forwards are, are nice and high up the pitch, and I think that's a really interesting development. Um, and I wonder if that was just uh, something for this game, or how that works if and when Özil comes into the team. Is he one of the wide forwards? That's not going to suit him. Um, how how does that triangle? What does the shape of that triangle look like? When you've got Reese Nelson, you've probably got like um, a, a kind of proper wide forward. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I thought he was okay today. I, you know, I don't think he really stood out. I don't think he did an awful lot wrong. I think he, um, 
you know, Atleti, they're very smart the way they defend. They steer you into certain areas. And, you know, Lacazette had the same shot about three times from the same position, kind of, you know, between the centre-half and the left-back. And Atleti are very smart. They understand that that's where the attacks are going to go because they block the centre-up so much. And if you look at Oblak in goal, he is part of this because every shot, exactly the same. Oblak, totally alive to it, over to his front post, blocks the shot. So what Atleti say is, yeah, shoot from there. Our goalkeeper, we've shepherded you over there. Our goalkeeper is expecting this. He has positioned himself um, so that he can block the angle on your shot. And that's what Atleti do. They block up the centre. You get no joy in central spaces against them. It's incredible. No matter who they play, they, they, you know, this was a weakened team, but you still see the commitment to their defensive zones. Exactly. They, they give you, they give you a little bit of the channel. They give you a little bit of wide and they say, go on then. See what you can do from there. And you know what? If you can crack one in from there, fair play to you. But you're not getting anything on the, on the penalty spot or in the six-yard box. Um, and so that that's, you know, for Nelson, there was a bit of space for him today because of that. But, you know, Atleti, that's a very stiff test <clears throat> defensively. Um, so I thought he did okay. Um, but it remains to be seen. But I, I think he should get a chance in the Europa League this year. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's going to be interesting, though, because to some extent, you know, when you when you list them out, right, Aubameyang, Lacazette, Mkhitaryan, Ozil, Ramsey, Torreira, Shaka. That's six players for uh, seven players for six spots, right? So now one of those guys maybe drops into the Europa League reckoning, and Awobi is in that reckoning, and suddenly you have a challenge to fit a guy like Nelson into that squad. And so... It's exciting to see the competition, but the path for young players in the front six to get into the first team this season is going to be tricky. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that happens. So, Clive, I know you're chomping at the bit to talk about Emil Smith Rowe. Um, so, I mean, he had the moment of the game. I don't know that he was the player of the game, but he certainly had the moment of the game. What did you think of his performance? I mean, the goal was obviously eye catching, but what did you think of his performance overall? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an easy pick out, right? So, um,. And yeah, just to finish off Tim's um, on um, yeah, sure. on Nelson, um, you mentioned Canabry, and I and I raise you Chris Willock. I think another player from the left who was you know a star in waiting and didn't quite happen because we had Nelson, and I think he just needs to add a little bit of bravery in possession. Once he believes he belongs at a level, he will go. At the moment, he doesn't quite believe it. He's he's a king at under twenty threes. In the first team, he's he's being a little bit cautious and he's looking after his possession stats. Once he he's given the license to say, "We don't care if you lose it, go and kill them." Then we're going to get. Then the player will arrive. On on Smith Rowe, he's um he's a he's a he's a Kevin De Bruyne. And we touched him last time, didn't we? You know, so um yeah, I he went sure a bit has lar- that kind of game, doesn't he? Yeah, I went a bit large on him, and not because. I think sometimes there's a tendency with, with young players when we all we all love our players, right? We all love football. We all love players. But sometimes with with, with fans I see on, on Twitter, etc., when we like someone, we almost try to own them. We almost like we he I spotted him. I saw him. He, he's he's mine. I, it's a bit of ownership. So I'm a, I, I look at them technically, but I don't want to own them. Does it, you see what I mean? I, I think yeah. if you look at his technical, yeah, I mean that gets back ability, to the conversation we had at the beginning of the podcast. So yeah. 
yeah, if you look at your technical really ability, anybody. Yeah. <laughs> no, you shouldn't, right? But you know what I mean by that, right? Yeah, There's I do. Of course, like, yeah, yeah you want to claim them as sort of your discovery. And, yeah, and, you know, it's exactly. like it's like when you find a There's band. No secrets in you know what the world, I mean? When you, mate, you know what I mean? When you were younger, no and you find it in the world. You sorry. can spot it on YouTube. I can watch him for ten minutes on YouTube, and I can tell you how he sees the ball, how he frames the ball. How it, what, how how does he dribble? Does he use two feet? Does he use inside outside? Yes, he does. Does he frame the ball nicely? Yes. Can he travel? Can he separate? Has he got change of pace? Yes, he's got all of that. Let's look at his goals. Can he score inside outside of his of his wrong foot? Yes, he can. Can he take set pieces? Yes, he can. Can he? Has he played wide and can he cross it? Yes, he can. Has he got calmness in the last third? Yes, he has. Have I seen him defend? Well, you know what? I watched Youth Cup final and he was being battered by bigger boys and he was diving into tackles. I thought, fair play to you. You know you're going to lose this game against Chelsea. They're bigger, they're stronger, but you're having it with them. You're brave. Unlike Nelson, you are having it with them. And I'm looking at that and I think, because I understand a little bit about players' attributes, I can go and say, this boy can play. I don't want to own him, right? It's obvious he can play. How's he going to develop? Well, if you look at... I, I posted a picture of him playing against Colchester, which was only probably about six months ago. Tim would probably know in the FA Youth Cup. Yeah, I was there. Uh, yeah, you of course were there. Good man. <laughs> and you know what, Tim? I My own son is a similar age, and he has changed significantly in the last 10 weeks. He's he just gone from boy to man. And I posted that picture, and if you look at him today, or Smith Rowe, versus that Colchester game, it is a complete change. And so now that separation he was showing at the youth team towards the end of last season is now being replicated with adults. Not only adults, but Champions League adults. I mean, that is how quickly players can explode, right? So, I have to laugh a little, Clive, because the, the funny thing is I almost wish this Smith Rowe was at this stage two or three seasons ago because we needed this. You know, when Rosicki left, yeah. the guy who can drive yeah. the ball forward through the center of the pitch, and we never had that, and it was a big miss, especially when Cazorla went down. And this Smith Rowe could have gotten into that team very easily. I just now wonder yeah. how he gets into this team, you know? Yeah, one day we have to do a podcast on development, physical, emotional, and, and biological development of yeah, can you help me with that, how please? it happens <laughs> and when it happens, right? Because it's a, it's a, I think it's something that we, we get wrong. We get wrong in this country, full stop, about how we, how we promote certain players of certain physiques and certain biological profiles. And you, you want players like this boy who was narrow-shouldered, literally six weeks ago, sorry, six months ago. He was narrow-shouldered. He ran with flat, slightly fat-footed. Now he's like six inches taller. He's stronger. He's got a thick-set jaw. He's grown into a man, and he can move like he's got a motorbike under him. And that's all happened in a short space of time. So where, and so his development is timed perfectly for professional football and longevity and sustainability of his talent. That's what you want. Someone like Jack, let's just talk about him, was a star at 14, training behind closed doors with the first team at 14. And that was what's happened because he had the strength, the power, the low centre of gravity to, to play with first team players at that age. However, his plateau has come earlier and sooner. And that's what happens. A star at 14 is not going to be a star at 28, I'm afraid. And that's, that's the way it goes. This kid has got something. And I said it last time, it's not a secret. 
let's hopefully he gets that pathway into the first team. It is one of the ironies, and I'm not saying I'm happy to be in the Europa League. It is a dirtbag, horrible competition that can get in the sea. <laughs> but it does give us a rare opportunity to keep these talents at the club instead of loaning them out and give them real games against competition that at least is, you know, relatively first-team level. Um, I know the group stages last season in the Europa League were just abominable, but you talk about the rare opportunity for Maitland Niles and Reese Nelson and Chris Willick to, or is it Joe Willick? Damn Willicks, they're popping up everywhere, to, to get into <laughs> the team, and it was great. I, I want to talk Wendozi, though, for a second, though, because, Tim, I, you know, I, we signed this guy, and I thought, okay, maybe three years from now we'll see something from this guy. He looks ready. He looked ready. I could not believe the range of passing he displayed, the way he received the ball in the half turn. I mean, he had a couple of little problems with the ball under pressure. I mean, where we tried to play out from the back, and I think everybody kind of struggled with us trying to play out from the back. But I noticed with, with Emery's, Emery's system here, what he was trying to do is when the keeper had it or when the ball got deep is the center back split and Guendouzi yeah, yeah. dropped in between and received the ball and started the progression from there and started the build-up from there, and he did a brilliant job. He he seemed to have a really nice range of passes. Reminded me of a Shaka with a little bit of a, of a more elegant touch on the ball. You know, maybe not the, mm. the passing of Shaka, but similar range of passing, but with a little more elegance on the ball. Am I overstating his, his influence? I was really impressed with his level. No, no, no. I, I thought he had, a, he had a good game, and certainly in the first half. Um, and I, I think what, what's quite interesting is not not just him um but you know there, there's a few players that aren't there at the moment uh Torreira and Jack um two of them and El Nenny couldn't play either and I, I was looking at it and I was thinking so so whose role is he playing then is he playing is this what because you know presumably the the team was set up as Emery would like to set it up and there's just some personnel missing so I was looking at it and I was looking at Reese Nelson and I was thinking right okay is that Ozil's position he's playing? And, you know, is Ozil going to be on the right of the front three? And if so, how's it, you know, he's not Reese Nelson. That's going to look different. But I, I was looking at Wendouzi and I was thinking, is he is he playing? He looked like he was kind of playing what I think Torreira's role um, might be. But yeah, yeah, you're right. He had that certain, you know, he's dropping back between the centre-halves. Um, Arsenal look like they're passing in slightly smaller spaces. Um, instead of you know going to Xhaka, I mean, I mean, and I don't know actually. There, there were quite a few crossfield balls to Kalasinac, um, which I think is a good outlet for Arsenal. But they they look like they're kind of moving the ball in slightly smaller spaces, Arsenal, rather than um, you know going going to Xhaka and then looking for like the big crossfield ball or the mean, the meaningful what Wenger called moderate value pass to Özil or Ramsey in space. It looked um, maybe a little bit more patient um than that so um yeah I, I was i was quite enthused by his performance i thought he looked quite good but i, I think my mind was thinking so who, who's he sitting in for at the moment who's doing that role when everyone's available yeah and i i mean it'll be interesting right because i i don't know enough about Torreira's passing to know how he will handle that if that is his role we know Shaka can do that but the idea of Shaka dropping that deep and collecting the ball under pressure that deep we know Shaka can be problematic on the ball with pressure especially in his own half um and so I'll be I'll be very curious to see that I think that's a great point uh Clive I mean uh, first let me let you get in here on Guendouzi I mean is it Guendouzi 
Gwendozi? Gwendozi? No, I don't. Gwendozi. Gwendozi. He, he is one Gwendozi of a player. I, I just said that to make you feel good, but cool. I don't really know. It's probably, it's probably not, <laughs> then it's probably not that. Don't worry. I'm sure Twitter will give me 82 different phonic <laughs> pronunciations of that. Uh, so, I mean, in your opinion, Clive, did you see what I saw in terms of the, the range of passing and the comfort on the ball? Yeah, so... I did my YouTube research, and now I've seen it. I've only seen about twenty minutes of this game, so I'm not going to comment. Do I, do I have to call you Doctor Clive now? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but what I will say is, the player that I think is he's going to pick off in the hierarchy is El Nenny. I think he's got a similar rhythm to El Nenny, how he moves. He's got a, he's got an energetic run, but what he has got, which is a layer on which El Nenny hasn't got, El Nenny is a is a support runner, passer, marathon runner. Right, I'm going to be where the ball is. This kid's support runner, passer, but I can step you. I can step through that line if it's there, if you present it to me. And then he hasn't got that option. It's not in his game. So I'm afraid, you know, if I'm on any, I'll be talking to my agent and said next summer, um, it's time for me to go. Right, and and that's a this could be our selling policy we spoke about earlier. He just signed a contract. He's going to be a very saleable asset next year. Gwendozi gets a year in the Europa League and then he and he moves out the pecking order into the more of the first team bench next year. And that's how it's gonna go. At twenty, he'll be on our bench getting first team minutes in the in the lower games. And at nineteen, he's in the Europa League and a cup player. And that's that's how we probably sold the club to him, because I'm sure he had other options. And that's good, right? You wanna have that that rotation, you want to have competition, and if I'm on any now, I've got to be absolutely outstanding to keep this kid back. If I'm not, I'm gone. Yeah, because I, if I go behind him, that's it. Is is Gwen something? Gwendolyn Guinevere? Is he? Uh, <laughs> is he a diamond eyes find? Do we know? Uh, I think so. I think so. I mean, because yes. I want to say yes. I mean, look. The guy's track record's pretty good, so I, I'm I'm willing to get excited about a player if if old Diamond Eyes found him. Let's let's just quickly touch on anything from this game that you noticed that you think is interesting takeaway in terms of what uh, Emery wants to do with the squad. I will I will say one thing quickly. I've always thought this whole running style thing is overstated. Oh, so and so has a bad running sound. Clive, you you've said it some. Oh, you know he doesn't oh, run yeah. right now. And I've always been like, ah, eh, whatever. But you know what? You watch Obama Yang run and the way he chews up the ground and the the. The way his his stride is so effortless, and I'm a convert. When you see someone who runs the right way, it it just jumps out at you. And that guy just yeah. runs the right way. But um, Tim, I mean, it it looks like a four three three to me. I know TV had it as I think a, a four two three one. It looks more like a four three three to me. The predictable mm. um, outrage on the internet over this game was the uh, the use of Obamiang. I, I hate the idea of him as a winger. I've been very vocal about that. But what mm-hmm. I saw was a lopsided three where Nelson was almost on the touchline and Lacazette yeah. and Aubameyang were more central, almost like a two. And Aubameyang did drop into some wide positions but seemed to have a lot of freedom. Did you see it the same way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely I did. And um, I, it, it's quite noticeable, isn't it? In, in the two preseason games that we've actually seen, that's what he's done. Aubameyang has been wide left. So you've got to presume that... Um, that's that's how he sees things, certainly at least at the moment. Um, I'm I'm really interested to see what happens when Urzil comes back in because you know as we've alluded to, there's not space for all of those attackers. I personally, I actually think that Mkhitaryan um, could be quite an important player um, in in this attack in terms of 
knitting things together because what we've got is we've got really definite styles of attackers. So we've got like Lacazette, we've got Ramsey, they're finishers, they're pure finishers. And then you've got like Ozil, who's a creator, Aubameyang's a finisher. I, I think we're perhaps not brilliantly balanced between creators and finishers. What I like about Mkhitaryan is he does both. And um, I, I think he could potentially do that kind of Rosicki tying things together um, kind of thing um, with, with the forward line. He can chip in with goals and he can make goals. We, we don't have many attackers like that. A lot of them are one thing or the other. Um, I, I guess the thing I kind of worry about with Aubameyang, it's, I, it, it's kind of worked so far. I think the evidence we have is that it's been fine. I, like you, am not convinced that that will be the case in perpetuity. I'm not sure he's brilliant in one-on-one situations. No, beating I agree. Players. I don't think he's brilliant on the ball, in the build-up. I think you want him in behind. Um, where he's been quite good is kind of sneaking in on that back post um, and, and, you know, using his goal-scoring instincts there. You know, maybe a bit like Sylvain Wiltord used to do from the right. Uh, Sylvain Wiltord, incidentally, was far more of a goal threat on the right wing than he ever was up front because he could pop into those spaces. But, you know, Aubameyang is a serious goal threat um, from centre-forward. And I, I, I'm just not sure Lacazette is quite the quality that makes me think we should be putting Aubameyang out on the left. But at the same time, we don't really have that many wide forwards. So whoever we put there, with the exception of Mkhitaryan, is going to be shoehorned there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about it. I think once everyone's available, we'll need a balance, really. I think we need two creators and two finishers. And, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't got a sense of, of how that's going to look like yet. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, there were a couple of runs Aubameyang made in this game that went unnoticed, that if Ozil was playing, he absolutely would have eaten them up. But here's the problem, right? People say, oh, he can play from the left because he can still make those out-to-in runs, he can still get in behind. And I totally, totally agree with that. But what people don't realize about Aubameyang is he's one of the highest XG and XG per chance players in all of Europe. And it's not just yeah. because he runs in behind, it's because he is an exceptional penalty box poacher. And so mm. I think playing him on the left, he can still run in behind, but you lose that central position to be a penalty box poacher. You know what I mean? Mm. And and that's where I think you you lose something from him playing him on the wing. I don't mind him making runs from a wider position. He can still run in behind. And in fact, you could say there's more space to run in behind between the fullback and center back than between the two center backs. But in the box, that's where yeah. I think you lose something. So... I'd be curious to see. I mean, Clive, do you want to weigh in on that? I he's, mean, yeah, sorry, I'd Tim. Just say yep. one sentence. He's he's another short space player. Yeah, give yeah. him give him a couple of yards. He doesn't need thirty, forty yards. Give him two. Yeah, he he bursts to the ball. His first, you know, he has that. I, I I'm going to compare him to Welbeck, which is a sacrilege. But the one thing that Welbeck does that always shocks me is he's explosive with his first step. Um, and Aubameyang is not just fast over distance, but he's explosive with that first step similarly, so he can get to, and he's got great instincts of getting to where the ball's going to be, and I, I think you lose some of that when he's not at center forward. Clive, I mean, uh, you can touch on that. One other thing I want you to touch on, the thing that jumped off the screen to me in terms of roles was the free role Ramsey had. Ramsey was playing like you'd expect an Ozil to play. Now, maybe that will ultimately be Ozil's role, but what they were using him as, it seemed to me, he was the pressing agent. So off the ball, when Atleti got it, he was pressing. He was the guy running forward to be the presser. But he did not have any requirement of where he needed to be. Guendouzi sort of sat the deepest. Uh, Emil Smith-Rowe, you know, 
got forward, but also dropped in alongside Guendouzi at times. But yep. Ramsey seemed to have license to go where he wanted to go. Did you see his role the same way? Do you think that maybe what Emery wants Emery wants to do is take advantage of his engine and his running and just say go run run all over the pitch because that's one of the things that makes Ramsey special. Yeah, yeah. So the way you have a choice with Ramsey, you either tell him what to do and tell him where to stand. The thing with him, where I'm always, although I do criticise him, I do recognise he can do every role in midfield. If you told him to play in front of the back four, he can do it. If you told him to be a steady eight, he can do it. If you want to be a, an eight and a half stroke ten and be free and get into the box, he can do that too. He played from the right, which I thought he was excellent at. He can do that too. So, I'm, well, although I criticise him, it's not because he can't do it, right? So you've got a choice. What do I do? Do I focus in on what he does and the zone to the pitch where he is most exceptional? Or do I try to fit him into a framework? And, and well, after today, and I haven't seen all of it, um, it looks as though we've given him a role to get fit. Go out there, work, get fit, press the ball, create some energy, set the tone by what you do, right? What you do on the ball and off the ball. And he's very good at that. At that. But as, we, as I always say, make sure there's a platform behind him because I care about the whole team, not just what he looks like, right? So that's that's that one thing. On the Bamiyang, I do believe um, that, you know, we look at Mbappe, for example, he's a wide forward. A Bamiyang is really the wide forward that we sold to Everton. Um, basically, we always had a forward out wide that was lazy coming back, and we've just moved sides with it. I, I do think the space is in wide areas. Teams are more vulnerable around the fullback areas. You can mark people. You can go deep. I think we attract people by Alakazet coming to the ball, and we go in behind him. That's the way to get the best from Aubameyang. He has to see the pitch, see the space, and then occupy it. Right and and Lacazette is not a mug in the box. His skill is getting to the box and one touch finishes and and creating finishes in the box. So although we lose a little bit of a Bamiyang if he can't get to the pitch of every single ball, we gain so much more on threat and how we pin teams back. I'm really I, I I'd love to see a wide forward on the other side. That's the the balance I look for eventually. But we're sort of hamstrung by the Urzul Mikatarian type debate. And how are we going to fit everybody in? Mikataran is my favourite for that right-hand side because I think his work rate is is suitable to allow um, Aubameyang to be lazy and to be a threat. And so the right-hand-sided player has got to be a worker. Much like in the good old days when Freddie was that player, got in behind, but also worked back and got goal side and, and helped the midfield. And, and maybe Mikataran can can take that role over. And then we have mm. the Ozil-Ramsey debate. We have the Shaka Torreira debate. We have all the other players pushing in behind, and that's the debate that we're waiting to see come out. And we haven't, we're not there yet because not everyone's fit. That's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, agreed. Um, so, last thing on this game, real quick, apart from the obvious problem that now I think, given this loss, it's pretty clear the treble's probably off. But, um, Tim, my, my only other takeaway, and it, to, to be clear, we are assessing preseason, relatively early preseason still. So, we all know that. No one's making definitive judgments here but i do think all our central defenders should get in the sea is that fair <laughs> yeah absolutely um every last one of them and um we should probably just get the 
old band back together and play Steve Bowles and Tony Adams. And, I, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd give it a shot. It can't be much worse. I mean, <laughs> talk me off the ledge with respect to our defense. I'm still... And, and now that it looks like Emery wants to play out from the back, like very clearly play out from the back, I'm even more scared. Yeah, just because I, I, I kind of... I tend to think maybe Callum Chambers can do that. Holdings, all right at that. I'm not sure Mavropanos can yet. I'm not sure that's what Socrates does. Mustafi's incredibly hit and miss when it when it comes to that. It's weird. It's like so, he can break lines, but he can't pass two yards. You know? Yeah, it's quite, and sometimes he really, really forces it. And yeah. It's almost like he thinks every pass has to be like a super line breaker, and, and sometimes it, it doesn't have to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that's a concern. I, I think that is a concern going into the new season. Uh, and, you know, look, we were never going to fix the defence overnight. It's It's been one of the biggest problems of our team for some time and the new manager's not going to fix that instantly whether it's personnel or system that saves it if it's indeed saved um we'll wait and see but yeah i i kind of share that concern uh, to be quite honest with you yeah and i will say this you know we're, we're getting a look again at kolasinac who basically didn't play last season and it just astounds me how surprisingly quick and good he looks in the attacking half but how beatable and deficient he still looks defensively and that is that is a worry because nacho can't play forever either um so we'll have to see uh you know i, I think on the other side bellerin i don't know that this was a great game for him but i don't worry about him as much clive do you um do you share my concerns about our defensive uh yeah i've, uh, I've got a few concerns about uh, i have got concerns about our defense but what I will say, and I, I came, I was working away this week, and I came back and I watched some highlights. And the first, just two things that jumped out to me about this game, and, and maybe the highlights were the highlights, but I saw a level of directness. I saw some diags and straight balls down the middle, so we were sucking teams forward and trying to go in behind. I quite like that directness. Cause I think we're too passive. And the second thing I saw was heavy legs all over the pitch. Their legs look so heavy. This was all about load. This was the players that have been loaded up with running and they were forced into a game. The amount of ugly, heavy, tired touches there were just in a game, the quality of touch wasn't there. And it's, sometimes I've worked this out in my mind. Sometimes you, you see the younger players and they're the ones that shine. And maybe they're the ones that can recover better from the heavy training load. They have that youth, they have that exuberance, they have the adrenaline, they're trying to take an opportunity. And we've seen this before where the young players shine in pre-season and the old dogs are creaking, right? They're creaking, they're getting massages and the load was all over their legs. When these players play once they're rested and they are peaked for a game, then I think we can judge them appropriately. Okay, fine, I'll wait. I guess you talked me into it. I will say this. You know, you can see clearly why Torreira is going to be such uh, a benefit to us because the one thing I did notice about Guendouzi, 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 uh, is that as great as he was on the ball, there were multiple times in the game where I was watching him and I was thinking, he's not really tracking back. He's a little slow to, to track his runner. And sure enough, their goal, which is a little fluky and a little lucky, does come from a guy who makes the run, ghosts in behind him. Uh, into the box, and it's probably his his man to mark and pick up. So, you know, I think with Terreira, you get a lot more of that defensive awareness, and I I hope and I think he will be a big part of plugging some of the the leaks that may arise from not necessarily having the best central defenders. So we'll see how that works out. I think, unless you guys have anything else to add, that that's probably a good stopping point on the game for there. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I think we've been recording, what is it now? Two days, three days. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm developing Stockholm syndrome. I don't know about you guys. So what we're going to do, we're going to let Clive go. You can follow Clive on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thank you, Clive. Thank you, my son. Appreciate we'll, it. Yeah, we'll talk to you as soon as your tongue and mouth recovers from, from all the talking we just did. So uh, please give Clive a follow. Uh, what we're going to do, so this is the exciting news. Uh, Tim has a book out. He is now, yeah. he's not just Tim, he is published author Tim. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, this, first of all, is really exciting. I, I'm, I'm thrilled for you. I think you are a tremendous writer, as we've heard. You've contributed to other, other books in the past. Uh, am I correct to say that this is your first uh, publication of your own? Yeah, yeah. Albeit there are, um, there are two other authors who, who've actually done most of the work. Um, well, so don't, I, let's not quit that. All right. Well, so, so so let let me back up. The book is called Royal Arsenal: Champions of the South. Uh, mm. It is out now. Why don't you tell us uh, the names of the other people who are involved with it with you, and where people can find the book? Yeah, sure. So um, the other authors who did like all the research and stuff are uh, Mark Andrews and Andy Kelly. They are very very revered, um, respected, uh, and very, very thorough Arsenal historians. They were, um, they were consulted by the club, uh, when the club were doing their 125th anniversary celebrations, um, on some of the historical accuracy of the origins of the club, which, which features in the book. Um, they used to have a column in the match day program covering history. They are the absolute foremost, um, Arsenal historians. The book is available on legendspublishing.net uh, forward slash product forward slash Royal Arsenal Champions of the South. Um, the link is also in my Twitter bio. It's uh, We ship it all over the world, wherever you are. Um, we, you will be able to order a copy. It's £19.99. Um, obviously, the shipping costs change depending on where you are, but but it will go everywhere. Um, yeah, and basically, I, I think it is uh, the absolute uh, kind of fundamental account of the first seven years um, of Arsenal's existence, and it's it's honestly it's fascinating stuff. It's we didn't have to embellish any of the material. This is not a dry history book. This is there is lots of drama. There is lots that happens. There are power struggles. Um, you know, there, there are some myths debunked. There is some things that have been accepted into Arsenal's history that Andy and Mark have completely debunked. For example, the uh, the story about Nottingham Forest sending Arsenal the, their first kits, which while they're playing red and white, not true. Huh. And you can find out why it's not true. Yeah, don't give all the good um, stuff away. The book. Do, does yeah. the book make clear whether the, the supporters back then were arson in or arson out? Or not, 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 no. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, but there is, there is there is a chapter on the crowd, and it's... It's very interesting because it's not what you'd think for um, kind of Victorian English society. Yeah. Uh, there were a few games called off because, you know, reps were assaulted and abused and, you know, ladies in their dresses were spat on and things like that. It's it's not quite as polite a society as, uh, as, as, as lots of people believe. Interesting. Well, I you know, look, I am a big believer that to appreciate the times you live in, you have to understand your history. I think that mm-hmm. is certainly being borne out by some of the problems we have in our wider society today is that people are forgetting their history. And so I think if you are going to be a true lover of the arsenal and sort of understand the arsenal of today, it is important to understand 
where this club came from and the history and why certain people have certain feelings about it. And, you know, the support goes back generations for some families. But this really mm. lets you know the the genealogy of the club, the birth of the club and the, the background of the club. And it is fascinating to dive into that. And I think something that every fan can do. And it's far enough back that... Um, it, it, it has a mythology about it that I think is exciting. So mm. it's something I think everyone should pick up. As you mentioned, it is uh, in your Twitter bio. We will put a link to it on the Arsenal Vision uh, Twitter account as well and, and share that around. But um, it would be great to to support you, obviously, in doing that and also just pick up a book that is really interesting. Do you want to set up the passage that you are going to be reading for us today? Yeah, sure. So actually, I'm going to be reading something from the very first chapter um, after the introduction and and things like that. Yeah, it's about um, a five-minute segment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and because it's a history book, you know, we go in there. There's a little bit of in the intro about how uh, Mark and Andy came across the source material and stuff like that. But um, really, it's just kind of setting up um, how and exactly how and exactly when um, Dial Square Royal Arsenal uh, was set up, and it it basically was set up because there was already a cricket club at the factory and the workers wanted something to do when the cricket season was over. Interesting. So they decided to start a football club. And you're going to hear that momentarily. And I will tell you, Tim, I uh, absolutely adore doing a podcast with you. I consider you a close friend I've never met. I will say that uh, you are going to need to take a, a, an energy drink before you do the audiobook version of this. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, just something to think about. Uh, but I, I hope you will listen to this, everyone. I hope you will buy the book. I, I know that I... Uh, cannot wait to read it. It is fascinating. It is fascinating material. And uh, we are going to give that uh, a listen now. In the meantime, give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about us in the comments. Uh, support Tim's uh, great work. And uh, we definitely look forward to, to hearing back from people what they think about that. Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure. And now I give way to Royal Arsenal Champions of the South. Although organised football had been in existence for at least 25 years and the game was played in almost every village, town and city in the United Kingdom, by 1886 it had generally failed to catch on in the northwest Kent districts of Woolwich and Plumstead. Woolwich at that point was predominantly a rugby and cricket dis district. Cricket was played with great fervour in the summer whilst the Blackheath rugby team from Greenwich was one of the most renowned in the country. The Royal Military Academy did play association football games as early as November 1883, yet, despite this, football had not really taken hold in the area. However, there was a fertile environment for one or more football teams to be formed in the Royal Arsenal Ordnance in Woolwich. Many of the Northern and Midland teams had originated in areas with heavy and light industries in the locality. With the advent of the shorter working week, working class men had the opportunity to spend their Saturday afternoons relaxing by playing or watching a game of football. At this time the Royal Arsenal employed more than 11,500 men, equivalent in size to some of the northern towns that had established football teams. In addition, the Arsenal was a magnet for skilled and semi-skilled workers from all over the country as it provided well-paid, secure employment due to the need for arms for the troops who were maintaining the empire. This can be seen by the increase in population of Plumstead between 1881 and 1891. The number of people living in Plumstead that were born outside of Kent increased at more than double the rate of those born in Kent in this time. Not too far away, on the Isle of Dogs, Morton's Canning Factory 
had recently shown that a mix of a large number of workers could be the catalyst for forming a football team of a reasonable standard when they founded Millwall Rovers in October 1885. Between 1884 and 1886, a number of men ventured south to take up work alongside the locals within the arsenal. It was the right mix of men at the right time that saw the creation of what we now know as the Arsenal Football Club. During the summer of 1886, a number of like-minded men from the Dial Square workshop, an aspect of the Royal Gun Factory in the Royal Arsenal, spent part of their weekend appearing for their works cricket team. They played most of the games on the western end of Plumstead Common and also ventured as far as Hertfordshire to play. On 12th of June 1886, the cricket team played Bushy United at the Woolwich Campground. The Dial Square team included Ridgewell, Dan Spin and Porteous, and either the editor of the Watford Observer, in which the game was reported, or the scorer at the ground struggled with the transcription of the correct names of Ridgewell, Dan Skin and Duncan Porteous, all Royal Arsenal football players. Danskin was captain, Porteous played in the first season and Ridgewell in the second season. There is no doubting the true identities of this men. Indeed, there is an overlap in personnel between the Dial Square Cricket Club and Royal Arsenal FC in the first few seasons of 1886 and 1887. In four Exton cricket reports featuring the names in the Woolwich Gazette, there are a total of seven players who played for Dial Square Cricket Club who are also part of Royal Arsenal Football Club. They were Danskin, Ridgewell, Porteous, Richard Price, Rowland, Thomas Gregory and George Smith. Despite being described as the artisans of Woolwich Arsenal, this is Dial Square Cricket Club, who continued to play over the summer, and they met Bushy away on the 21st of August, in what the report described as a return fixture between the teams. As was customary during the Victorian era, at the end of the season the Dial Square Cricket Club held a smoking concert, effectively a gentleman's night out, at their pavilion. It was at this meeting, on 4th of October 1886, at the Prince of Wales Public House on Plumstead Common, that footballers were invited to form an association team. Fred Beardsley in the Woolwich District Football Handbook pinpoints this as the start of the club. Quote, at the close of the year 1886, a meeting of the Dial Square Cricket Club was called, to which a few association football enthusiasts were invited for the purposes of forming a football club. Watkins always also identifies the same occasion. This club was formed at the Prince of Wales Plumstead Common in 1886, he reported. The cricketers would have had motive and means to discuss the creation of a football club within the drink and smoke-filled pub. As well as being a keen cricketer, Watkins is a key conduit between the cricket club, of which he was secretary and player, and the football club, of which he was also secretary albeit only for the opening season of 1886-87. So the club was founded by the artisans of Dial Square via the cricket club as the factory workers were keen to extend their leisure activities into the winter months. It's quite unlikely that they could ever imagine what they were about to create. <laughs>